Well, good morning, everyone. I can always tell when I'm, uh, Pastor David was not the last one to preach up here because the pulpit is much lower. I don't know if you know this, this pulpit can go up and down, and when Pastor David's preaching, it's way up here, and I feel like I'm down here preaching, so it's nice to have a pulpit that's height-adjusted. Uh, I'm so grateful for this extended period of time when we can gather together and see each other, be able to greet one another. There's always a lot of new faces coming in and out, summer. So we're so glad that uh, you're here with us. Um, I do understand that not everybody enjoys this time. Um, Particularly for my introverted friends, and and sometimes I feel a little introverted myself. It reminds me of a meme I read a couple of days ago. You may have seen this on Facebook. The, The meme was referencing escape rooms. And escape rooms is that game where groups are locked in a themed room uh, for an hour, and they have that hour to try and escape from that room using clues and helps provided. And so this meme said, terrifying new escape room just locks you in a church meet and greet time. <laughs> for some of you, you may feel like that. You may feel like you're in an escape room, but you are welcomed here. We're glad that you're here. In case you've been gone, you're new to Rivermont, we are in a summer sermon series on discipleship. This is a topical study where each of the pastors are are looking at different aspects of discipleship. And we're doing that so that we can have a more robust view of discipleship and, and Lord willing, have a more fruitful life as one of the Lord's disciples. Pastor Mike kicked off the series a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the identity of a disciple. We especially looked at the call to and means by which we become disciples of Christ. Last week, Pastor Ron reminded us that the the basis of our discipleship and the basis of our ministry is gospel reconciliation. Because our sins separated us from God, Christ reconciled us to God through His death and His resurrection. Now this morning, I'd like for us to go a little deeper and look at the spirit and fruit of our discipleship. Specifically, I want us to look at the kind of disciples we are becoming and how we can tell if we're on the right track. We've already established that disciples are learners. They're students. And as a former K-12 through student, I did not enjoy learning. Not one bit. It was tedious, and honestly, I would rather have been playing sports than study. I regularly did just enough to get by. And because of that, I didn't always keep up with my assignments. I generally procrastinated and waited as long as I could before I would study for a test. Of course, I wasn't the only one in my class that would do that. And so as a result of that, my teachers sought to break us of that habit by giving us pop quizzes. I hated pop quizzes. Even saying the word pop quiz sends a shiver down my spine even right now. Why? Because I was never prepared. I hadn't kept up with my homework and reading, and so I was doomed to fail, which I often did. Even though I knew those pop quizzes would come, I failed to prepare for them. Believe it or not, Jesus is addressing a similar mindset in Matthew 25. That is our text for this morning, Matthew 25. I'll read verses 31 to 40, and you can go ahead and turn there. I'll read those in just a few minutes. But he's using parables, which are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, to teach his disciples that a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, will come when the Son of Man returns in glory. He compares the coming of the Son of Man to a bridegroom collecting his wedding party. 
and a businessman collecting on his employees' investments. The foolish wedding guests had not come prepared for the biggest event of their life, and they were kept out. The foolish employee had only been about his business rather than his um, employer's business, and he was fired. And so when that day of reckoning came, when that eternal pop quiz was given, they were not ready. And they showed themselves to be unfaithful disciples. And they received their just punishment. But then Jesus pivots the new COVID word we like to use. He pivots. He moves from parable to personal in our text. Because at the end of the day, discipleship is personal. You see, we are not only learning from Jesus as our teacher, we are learning Him as the subject of our discipleship. In other words, we are learning from Him and of Him. And so the question Jesus wants us to wrestle with this morning is, are we living in such a way that we are prepared for His second coming? Are we living in such a way that shows that we are using His gifts and His skills and abilities for His kingdom purposes and not not our own? Is there enough evidence to show that we are His true and faithful disciples? To answer those questions, let's turn to our text again. Matthew 25, I'll start reading in verse 31. This is God's Word. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. O Father, we come to you in this particular moment and we are painfully aware not only of our need to understand your word, but our need to rightly apply it to our life. We want to be faithful disciples. Would you, O Lord, help us through the empowering of your Holy Spirit to be such disciples. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The passage I've chosen is a difficult one. It's a challenging one. It's it's challenging, I guess, not because it's difficult to understand so much. Rather, it's challenging because it reminds us that discipleship will cost us. The currency of discipleship is our time, our talent, our treasures, yes, even our very lives. And what we find out is that it is expensive. Discipleship stretches and moves us. It takes us out of our comfort zones. It, it moves the furniture around and often guts our lives and rebuilds them from the inside out. It, it's a self-denial, cross-bearing, following Jesus wherever He leads us kind of discipleship. We begin to understand some of that cost as Jesus mentions in the text six acts of service. 
We find this list first in verse 35 before he repeats it again in verse 38. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list of service. And nor is it meant to be a checklist by which we simply tick things off when we've accomplished them. Rather, this list gives us the most basic evidences of the disciples' call to love the body of Christ. Now, if you look closer at this list, you'll see there are two types of needs being met here. There are physical needs being met. Those who are hungry receive food. Those who are thirsty receive drink. And those who are naked receive clothes. But note there are also relational needs being met. Strangers receive welcome. The sick receive comfort. And the imprisoned receive a visit. Now, as you consider these six needs... Which are more challenging for you to meet? Which might be more costly for you to meet? If you're more money conscious, then physical needs might be more challenging to meet. Or if you're more time conscious, and our culture is decidedly so, then relational needs might be harder to meet. And yet as a disciple, we don't pursue what is easy, do we? Rather, we pursue what is right. But rather look at this entire list. I really want to zero in this morning on just... One, welcoming the stranger. And to help us understand what Jesus means by welcoming the stranger, I I want us to look at the what of welcome. That is to say, what does it mean to welcome? Secondly, the who of welcome. Who are we to welcome? And third, the why of welcome. So first, the what of welcome. Now, some of you have already been part of a training that Jennifer Eaton and I have created called Welcome 101. And if you haven't, Don't worry, you'll have an opportunity this fall to go through that with us in the Sunday School Hour. And one of the things that we set out to do in this training is to define what do we mean when we say welcome. After all, if we're going to follow Jesus' command to welcome the stranger, if we're going to be a welcoming church, we need to be in sync with our understanding of Jesus' understanding with ours. Now, the word that is translated welcome in English here is the Greek word sunago. And it's curious that Jesus uses his words because it was not the main word for welcome in the Greek. In fact, of the 24 times Matthew uses sunago, only twice is it translated as welcome, and they're both in our text. The other 22 times it is translated as gather or assemble. To gather as in a farming term used to gather the crops and store them in a protective environment like a barn. Or most often it's used to refer to people gathering or assembling. And in Matthew's gospel that assembling was often the Pharisees and scribes assembling to plot Jesus' death. Again, why would Matthew use this word when a better word, there was a better word for welcome? Because the main word for welcome was not strong enough for what Jesus had in mind for welcoming the stranger. What often passes for being welcoming in churches is what I would call friendliness. It's saying something to a visitor like, Hi Jane, thanks for visiting. I'm so glad to see you today. And then going on our way. That may feel like a pretty good welcome. It may feel warm. And friendliness certainly is warm. But it stops short of the kind of welcome that I believe Sunago, the kind of 
welcoming that Jesus is referring to because it stops short of engagement. To welcome someone includes both warmth and engagement. It says to that visitor, we're not just glad you're here, that's warmth, but we want you here. Let me show you how you can get connected to this church body. Let me help you understand how we worship. Let me help you get your kids to the nursery. Let me introduce you to some of other moms that are on the playground so that you can get to know them too. You see, it's, it's removing those barriers and obstacles that prevent people from being connected and known and gathering them into the fellowship. When Jesus said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, He's saying, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. You welcomed me into your fellowship. You brought me into your life. And that's what it means to be welcoming. And please note that Jesus does not qualify who does the welcoming. He doesn't reserve this service for the extroverted, outgoing people. He doesn't reserve it for the ushers or the We Connect team, which Jennifer will talk a little bit about later in the service. He doesn't reserve it for the professionals. It's all of us who are to welcome. In fact, if you are a member of this church and a disciple of Christ, you are automatically on the largest committee of this church, the Welcome Committee. Everybody is on this committee, and you know what? It is a lifetime appointment. You don't get to rotate off like we do for our session. And so welcoming is more than just about being a warm and friendly greeting. It is engagement. It's removing barriers for people to be and feel a part of this church and gathering them in. But let's be more precise. Who does Jesus say that we should be welcoming? Who is the who of welcome? It's the stranger. Jesus says in verse 35, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Now, when we hear the word stranger, it immediately has a negative connotation, doesn't it? The term stranger danger may have even popped into your head if you're a parent or maybe even a child. The reason we often think negatively of the term is that a stranger is an outsider. He or she is unknown to us. They're foreigners to our community. They, they don't know our language or our customs or our culture. And I'm thinking about church customs and church culture. That is consistent with the meaning of the biblical word for stranger that's used here, which is xenos. You're getting a Greek lesson here this morning. It can mean that word xenos, a foreigner from a different community within the same country, or it can mean a foreigner from a different country. No doubt you've heard the term xenophobia, which is formed from the root word xenos. Xenophobia is simply a fear of foreigners that results and a prejudicial mistreatment of them. Now, I think it's interesting but not surprising that Matthew is the only gospel writer to record this teaching. You see, remember that Matthew was himself a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. So who is the stranger for a Jew? It was non-Jews, right? Or Gentiles. Now, we know that Jews wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. In their minds, they were outsiders of the covenant promises of God. They were foreigners in language, customs, and culture. They were unclean and not to be associated with. And it it wasn't until Peter had his vision on Simon the Tanner's rooftop in Acts 10 that things began to change in the church. 
Even though Jesus had made clear the call to offer hospitality to the Zenos, to the stranger. And let's not forget that Matthew wasn't just a Jew. He was a former Jewish tax collector. And because of that, he would have been despised by his own people for the way he had colluded with Rome. He would have been a stranger in his own context and would not have received a warm welcome. Now, if we zoom back out to the original six acts of service that I mentioned, the the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the imprisoned, who did Jesus have in mind here? Was he just talking about anyone who had need? Was he just talking about Jews? Was he just talking about the disciples? Who did he have in mind? Well, most commentators agree that Jesus had in mind not just the disciples, but any Christian down through the ages that was in need. Notice in verse 40 that Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, of course, the reference to my brothers would have also included sisters, but it reveals that we must take care of the family of God when they are in need. This certainly does not preclude loving our neighbor, but it does prioritize our love for the body of Christ. Yet it does more than just prioritize our love, it also expands our love. It widens it. You see, of the six needs that are mentioned, it is welcoming the stranger, the outsider that involves going beyond the established family to bring in one who would belong to that family. I think this is why welcoming the stranger can be challenging. We tend to only focus on the established family of God and not necessarily those who are on the outside of the family looking in. Now, when I came to Rivermont eight years ago, and it's hard to believe it's been eight years, I I noticed something immediately about our church. There was minimal signage in the interior and exterior of our building. I don't know if you remember that. If you've been here long enough, you may. And I think there may have been two signs that were in the building pointing everybody to the sanctuary. That's an important sign. Plus the requisite bathroom signs. Now what that told me was that Rivermont had largely been a church for insiders. It was for folks who had been attending long enough to know where the John Knox room was. Or where Country Gardens was. But, But if you were new, you had to work really hard to figure out where things were. And what the custom and the culture was. Now, this was not intentional, as far as I can tell, but we had forgotten or neglected the call to welcome the stranger in our midst, to aid them in becoming part of our church family. Now, a word I haven't mentioned yet, but is synonymous with welcoming the stranger, is hospitality. It's a word we're all familiar with. And I think it's interesting to note that the biblical word for hospitality, again, another Greek word, is philozenia which is a compound word made up of philo, which you may have heard that, that's brotherly love, and xenos, which we just talked about, which is foreigner. So philozenia is showing love to foreigners, entertaining strangers. The writer of Hebrews captures this powerfully in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in this body. He says, even as you show brotherly love for one another, don't forget 
Don't miss the opportunity to show hospitality, to show welcome to strangers in your midst. In God's providence, no stranger ever shows up to Rivermont on accident. God has sent them to us that we might welcome, that we might engage them. He has directed their steps for His sovereign purpose. And we would do well to welcome uh, to welcome them and show hospitality to them. After all, we have no idea whom God might bring to us to encourage or bless or have them encourage or bless us. So let me get really practical. Can I get practical? I want to get really, really practical. There are three ways I'd like for you to engage those who are new to this church or at least new to you. And I'm going to, they all have to start with the letter L. So easy to remember, L. The first, since Sunday worship is the primary venue for welcoming strangers, we should first look for new people. Now that may sound super obvious, but it's not something that we often think about. But but as you walk into the building and you find your seat in the sanctuary, look around you and see who you don't know or recognize and make it a mental note in your mind. I'm going to go meet that person, maybe during the fellowship time or maybe after the service is over. The second way I want you to engage is to the second L, learn from new people. Now, as you meet someone, I'd encourage you to ask questions to learn maybe why they've come. Are they new to town? Are they recently widowed? Are they coming from another church? What needs might they have? And then as you learn more about them, it's going to help you with the third way to engage them, which is to lead new people. So as you learn more about where they are coming from and and what their needs might be, you can lead and connect them to people and ministries. It may mean that you take them to your Sunday school class. It may mean that you invite them to sit with you or your family for worship. It may mean you introduce them to someone in the church who has mutual interest. It may mean that you invite them over to lunch after the worship service. Whatever the case may be. God intends to use you and me to welcome the stranger in our midst. He's looking to you as His disciples to welcome those who are not yet part of our church family, to engage them with your presence. And again, I think He's also looking to you to welcome those who are part of the church family but are new to you. And I think most of us recognize that if we were to go to the 11 o'clock service, we might not recognize everybody that's in there. Even though we're part of the same church family, we don't necessarily know everybody. We may see them in the hallway or we may see them in the pew in front of you, but we haven't met one another. So take a moment to reach out to them. Find out how long they've been coming to Rivermont. What do they love about Rivermont? Are they in a Sunday school class or life group? If they've only been coming for a little bit, ask them if they've been able to maybe make friends here. Encourage each other, maybe even... Pray for one another. Take the time to welcome and engage one another. Lord willing, we will have fewer strangers among us. So we've seen the what of welcome. We've seen the who of welcome. Now let's unpack the why of welcome, the most important part. And if you're like me, answering the question, why should we welcome the stranger, needs to be more than because Jesus told us to do so. And what we see in our text is that Welcoming the stranger is actually a matter of spiritual life and death. As we look back at our text, we see the context is Jesus' triumphant 
return. At His second coming, He will come to judge both the living and the dead. And at that judgment, He is looking for evidences of saving faith. Are there markers? Are there measures that demonstrate the reality of one's faith in Christ? For if we have been saved into the family of God, we are learning to love that family. We are serving that family. And we are definitely welcoming strangers into that family. Now some of you might be asking, well, how will I know if I've done enough welcoming? To that I would say you're asking the wrong question. It's not about how many strangers you've welcomed. Rather, it's asking, has my heart been touched? Has it been transformed by the welcome that God has given to me through Christ? Has it given me a heart that wants the stranger to be welcomed into our family? The verse that's often listed below the fellowship of the peace of Christ is Romans 15, 7, which states, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul clearly tells us that the motivation for welcoming the stranger, the why of welcoming is because we have been welcomed first by Christ. We welcome the stranger because we were a stranger. In fact, we were estranged from God because of our sin. That first began with Adam and Eve's sin. They had lived inside the Garden of Eden and enjoyed uninhibited fellowship with God and with one another. But because of sin, they lost that fellowship and they were estranged from God. They became outsiders living outside of the Garden of Eden and the relationship they once enjoyed with God. And yet God made a way. He did not leave them on the outside, nor does He leave you or me on the outside. But He sent His Son who became one of us. He shared our humanity in all of its weakness, in all of its fragility, in all of its temptation and deceit, yet was without sin. And He willingly offered Himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. He willingly became an outsider as He took on the punishment our sins deserved. He did that so that we who had been on the outside could now receive the welcome of God. We could know the love and mercy of God as a father, as an insider in the family of God. He did that for you, and He did that for me. Do you believe that? Have you received that? Will you welcome the stranger? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do recognize even in this moment that we have received a great welcome, one which we did not deserve because we were outsiders to your grace and your love. But because of Christ, you have brought us in, Lord. You have made us a part of your family, Lord, and our desire is to be a welcoming family. And so many, Father, I would characterize as being welcomers of those who are strangers to our community and our family. Lord, and I pray that you would multiply this welcoming spirit, Lord, that we might be known as a church for being, for being a welcoming church where people are engaged with the gospel, with your word, where the truth of your word is made known and rightly and clearly and winsomely proclaimed. We thank you for that history and we pray for our future that you would do a great work in and through us. This cannot happen outside of your help. 
outside of your Spirit's work in our life. And so, oh, Holy Spirit, would you work? Would you do what only you can do? Help us, Father, to welcome the stranger. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.